0: and the USOPC in no way warrants that content of featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show.
1: The people in Australia did Juan Antonio Samaranch a big, big favor in terms of changing the narrative about the Olympics.
2: Mesdames et Messieurs. The greatest festival of our contemporary society The Olympic Games is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it. You can do it.
0: Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But that is an Olympic champion. Ready?
3: Welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I'm your host, Jill Jarrett, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, we are back!
4: We are back and we are ready to go. That's right. But we don't know who we are. We, we
3: don't, That is very true. We don't know who we are yet. For the time being, we are Olympic Fever, the podcast that can't make any money and is supporting itself. But uh, we do need a new name for the show. As if you recall, a couple episodes ago, we told you about our conversations with the USOPC and how they would really appreciate it if we changed our name, if we would like to earn money from the show, and it's not possible for us to continue doing the show without being able to earn money. So we need to change our name. And we need your help for that. We would like suggestions for a new name. We'll put a form on our socials and our show notes and our website, olympfever.com and olympfever on all the socials and Olympic Fever podcast group and make your suggestions and uh, you will get the joy of knowing you have named the show if we choose your selection. And we're doing this because we had talked about potentially having a contest, but there are a lot of legal issues around that. And it's... and we've
4: had enough legal issues. I know, Thank I know. And
3: it's, it, it's actually been very overwhelming to try, try to consider how to do that legally when we've got some eyes on us that we know are, are watching. So we're taking suggestions. The other reason why we are concerned about a contest is that we don't know how to structure it without having to pay for legal counsel and do so in a way that we could have listeners from all over the world chime in because we have listeners who don't live in the united states whom we love and appreciate very much and we would like them to be able to participate so we are doing a show name suggestion bonanza how about that show name suggestion bonanza
4: i'm sure somebody will get in trouble if we call it a bonanza
3: all right well we'll try we'll try anyway
4: lauren green will come back from the dead and be like that was my show So if you get that reference, you are as old as dirt.
3: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, so we look forward to hearing what you come up with. We'll also put up the intellectual property page that the USOPC has so you know what not to use and also what the IOC tells you not to use. We'll also put, there's a bunch of other podcasts now and other newsletters, so we'll put those titles up there as well. Uh, there's... We don't want to sound too much like somebody else's name because we don't want to be too confused, but uh, we'll try to find something clever and fun that uh, we will enjoy using for years and years to come. So we're looking forward to hearing what you come up with. and Thank you in advance.
4: Well, and let's... speaking of legal issues with the IOC, our guest for
0: today.
3: Yeah. Today we are talking with Stephen R. Wren and Robert K. Barney, authors of the new book, The Gold in the Rings The People and Events That Transformed the Olympic Games. This book looks at the evolution of the commercialization of the IOC through 10 key people and events from the Brundage, Kalanen, Samaranch, and Rogue presidencies. Stephen is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Physical Education at Wilfrid Laurier University, and Robert is a professor emeritus and the founding director emeritus of the International. Center for Olympic Studies at the School of Kinesiology at Western University. They have also written with Scott Martin the book Tarnished Rings, the International Olympic Committee and the Salt Lake City Bid Scandal. Take a listen. This is a, a book in a series of books that you've been working on over the years talking about money and finances and the IOC.
1: That's correct. I mean, uh We we sort of went down this path, I think, in the aftermath of my completion of my PhD dissertation in the early 1990s, and that resulted in a book published in uh, 2002 that I think covered the subject pretty well, but it was pretty dense in terms of its presentation, perhaps necessarily so because of the reliance on archival material. But with this book, we've tried to reach a wider audience. In terms of the way we present it, the story, and we extend the story through Jacques Rogge's presidency, and you know, provide we hope ample diversion for the reader through uh, merging the story with biography.
4: So, what originally got you into this, into the looking of money in the IOC?
2: Let me say what preliminary remark. The way we get into this was Stephen, as he said, was at Penn State doing his Ph.D. on Olympic television. At about almost the same time, I had a master's student here who went on into the doctorate degree named Scott Martin who was who was doing a dissertation on the top sponsorship program, in other words, the other big fundraising mechanism of the IOC, the link to corporate enterprise, if you will. So. It seemed and I was not particularly interested in the finance of the Olympic Games. I was more of an antiquarian type of historian as far as the Olympic history is concerned, but it seemed to me like these two these two dimensions, television and corporate sponsorship in the raising of money would make a nice little study if they were brought together. So I sort of looked at it as the letter Y with one of those oblique members of a Y being the Olympic television, Stephen, and the other oblique membership of the Y being Scott Martin and corporate sponsorship, and the stem of the Y being me from the overall historical point of view. And so we all came together. And, and that would have been in the early 1990s, middle 1990s. And so that's how we get into it.
3: One of the things that really piqued my interest Very early in the book, you talk about the one and only time there were advertisements in the Olympic Stadium, which was Paris 1924. Now, this actually coincides nicely with some of our previous content because we have a movie club that watched Chariots of Fire, and one of the things we noticed were the advertisements in the stadium. So talk to us a little bit about how that came to be and the swift reaction to it. As we, that was the one and only games where they had advertisements in the stadium.
2: Well, as you said, it was 1924, and Kubitschek was still in charge of the games then, in charge of the IOC actually, not in charge of the games. But but uh, nevertheless, he was violently opposed to any commercial inroads into the games, just as he was on other issues, women, for instance, in the games, and to some extent the amateur question. Although he wasn't so Uh, He wasn't so vigorous about that as other people were. But nevertheless, uh, when it became known in the early 1920s that the Olympic movement had gathered a lot of international attention and as well as national attention within the countries that participated in the Games, of course, advertisers of products uh, were quick to jump on that bandwagon. And, for instance, that report of the games, as I remember it in nineteen twenty four was a three hundred and fifty page document, some three hundred and fifty page document, and half the documents were advertising pages for different products, all types of products, even including alcohol, and aside from sports related products so this is how that crept in and and I guess that there was no rule about no Olympic, no advertising within an Olympic venue at that time and that's why Paris was able to do that. I know there was a Dubonnet advertisement, and there was a perfume advertisement among others, but uh, as a result of that there came the rule very quickly that advertising within the venues would be excluded and that's held up pretty well to, to this day.
4: Yeah, and it, and the Olympics are unique in that, in that they are really the only sporting event where you don't have advertising all around the venues at the gates for the skiing, around the ice skating rinks, you know, on the tracks. So it it's amazing how it's been able to be maintained once they made that decision for yeah, so long.
1: Yeah, things I'd add to that is I think Bob and I learned uh, while completing the research for this that you know Juan Antonio Samaranch actually. Was uh, leaning in the direction of changing this clean venue policy, but was ultimately convinced by uh, Dick Pound, who was chairman of the marketing commission, and Michael Payne, who was the then marketing director, that the clean venue policy couldn't be sacrificed. And I didn't realize that the discussion got to that point where, you know, the IOC president was going to be just fine with it, but a little bit of pushback meant that the discussion got shelved again. Has
4: it ever come back again that you're aware of?
1: Not that I'm aware of. Uh, you know, we had a chance to sift through uh, minutes of the session, executive board, for the first 13 years of of this century, and, and it didn't seem to pop up again. Uh, uh, there seems to be uh, a commitment to it. And to be frank, they're doing so well in terms of, the value of these top sponsorships now that I think there's a level of contentment that means they're not going to go after this, at least in the short term. One of the places
4: where the Olympics has made a ton of money is with television rights. And I was very interested in your book, how you trace that through, because even with the advertising, the Olympics seem to, or the IOC, always seem to be playing catch up like they realize something is an issue and then they're trying to catch up to it. So talk a little bit about the history. So it started in 56 was really the at Melbourne was the first time that it was an issue.
1: Well, yeah, Melbourne was a problem because there really wasn't uh, a governing policy in place for how to deal with television networks that were looking to use coverage that extended beyond that, which we would think is just simple news coverage. And the television networks were making the claim that, well, you don't charge the New York Times or the LA Times to put somebody here and they're writing articles in a newspaper that is funded by sponsorship and advertising. So why are you treating the visual media differently? Of course, there came a point in time where organizing committees and even the IOC realized that there was money to be made here. And unfortunately, at least for Melbourne, it meant that uh, there was a fairly wide-scale blackout of television coverage of those games, which forced the IOC's hand, Avery Brundage's hand, in devising policy and setting up, in a sense, the concept of television rights. So, you know, one of the individuals that we bring forward to a much wider audience in terms of understanding his contribution to that process was the uh, president of the Melbourne Organizing Committee, an individual named Wilfred Kent Hughes. So, you know, that's really sort of what underpins the book, all of these different stories that we try to link together as sort of these 10 signature moments. We try to bring forward the contribution of individuals to those particular scenarios, um, but individuals that extend far beyond uh, simply the president of the day. Who was one of my least favorite people, Avery Brundage. Avery Brundage. Well, he was a complicated, well, I don't know. I Sometimes I always start out saying he was a complicated person, but that, I, he wasn't as complicated maybe as at first thought because, uh, you know, he certainly was not somebody who favoured the marriage of the Olympics with commercialism, at least that's what his heart told him. Um, but he was a businessman and his head told him that there was money to be made. So he, he sort of, uh, you know, he... He allowed his uh, head to win out over his heart in that regard over the longer term and uh, you're quite right when you say that the IOC was playing catch-up for many years in part because they were constantly having to walk farther and farther away from the belief that was espoused by the likes of Brundage that the Olympics stood separate from commercial money but uh, they couldn't do that for an extended period of time because the organizing committees required the money to stage these things. So, uh, yeah, there were repeated episodes, as we try to detail in the book, where organizing committees took advantage of the IOC. And really, it wasn't until Lord Kalanon arrived that the IOC started to build the internal Uh, knowledge base in terms of dealing with television. And then, of course, under Samaranch with foot soldiers like Dick Pound and Michael Payne, they they stepped it up in a great way.
4: So Lord Kalanin, the IOC president in the 70s.
1: Yeah, he was Uh, president between 72 and 80. There were some rough learning moments for the IOC in, in Kalanin's presidency, but, I mean, he in a sense realized that he... He had to put the IOC in a position that it could be a negotiating body of these television contracts, but before the IOC could effectively do so, it needed to know more about how the television industry functioned and how negotiations worked. So that was his contribution, and then that knowledge was uh, enhanced and leveraged by Juan Antonio Samaranch in the 1980s and beyond.
4: So one of the next big turning points that you cover in the book is los angeles 84 which was huge in so many respects in that it was a games that made money which was very different than say 76 and obviously 80 and their television rights were very different just a lot of things changed with 84 and peter uberoff and his contributions
1: yeah i think well bob can add to this but i mean i would just say that uh provided a template for previously shy, somewhat scared, prospective host cities to step forward to be able to produce an Olympic Games that was not going to imperil the financial status of the, the city. And of course, he set about maximizing television rights. Uh, he wanted to make use of pre-existing facilities and not blow one's budget through extensive capital infrastructure costs. So he he uh, he showed the way, and uh, he also made a significant contribution in terms of demonstrating how you could revamp the domestic sponsorship program for an organizing committee by greatly reducing the number of sponsors of an individual games, but enhancing the value of each sponsorship in terms of what the sponsor paid by giving them you know, exclusive rights of access for advertising within a particular product category, providing hospitality, providing access to tickets. So the thought of a domestic corporate sponsorship of an Olympic Games looked really attractive to American companies. And um, that also showed future perspective organizing committees how to do it. I mean, $232.5 million profit, it was just, I mean, it was absolutely unheard of. And to a certain extent, Eubroth was forced into that posture because, of course, he wasn't going to receive any federal government money. They got, you know, a little bit to manage some security issues. But beyond that, it was it was privately funded. And um, it greatly encouraged cities to get back into the bidding game. And of course, one of the the strands of history from that particular festival was that uh, it greatly imp- increased the competitiveness and the desire of cities to host the games. And in doing so, it moved them in a direction of seeking different means of securing IOC member votes. And it it put the IOC in a, you know, in a, what we'd call a simmering crisis situation when, when Samaranch really didn't confront the rumors of excessive gift exchange between bid committees and IOC members and we take that story through to its early ultimate conclusion in the form of the Salt Lake City bid scandal.
4: Stephen you're so nice in saying that corruption ran wild in the IOC for a little while there.
1: Yeah, well, I mean I think it's important to understand that we are talking about a minority of of the members and It is true. We we can't at all. Nobody can say Salt Lake City was the only city to engage in this kind of activity. It's others were doing it too. Uh, But Salt Lake City was the city whose uh, slush fund was outed in the local media. And then uh, the story mushroomed into, uh, you know, really a global media crisis for the IOC that at the time, you know, was really well equipped and staffed to raise money and generate revenue, but it wasn't equipped and staffed to deal with this kind of a crisis or a scandal. And, you know, they had to bring in outside consultants. Uh, The autonomy of the organization was most assuredly threatened. It forced them into, you know, reactive crisis management, which is never desirable. But at the end of the day, uh, one of the things that, you know, we've we've dealt with and we dealt with in a, another book in its entirety, is that despite having put itself into this position, the actual ability to manage the crisis and come out of it within about a calendar year whole and not under the auspices of the United Nations was in and of itself a bit of an achievement.
4: What about the way Samaranch ran the IOC and sort of his push to to increase commercialism in the Olympics, do you think led to the scandal?
2: Or do you? Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Bob? Well, one has to realize that, you know, the it, the wealth of the Olympic movement rests upon two factors. And one of them is the exposure that it has to the world through television and the number of people worldwide who watch it and how attractive that is to people who put the money into advertising. And the other is the image that it has, the image of its value system, for instance, peace, friendship, tolerance, brotherhood, togetherness, so on, which are all admirable qualities for any ideology, I guess. But but nevertheless this image is an important important thing because that's one dimension that is sold to the commercial marketplace, and much understood that. But at the same time, things like the Salt Lake scandal and any other scandal, doping, for instance, this tends to tarnish the image of the Olympic movement or the Olympic Games. And when image is tarnished, there may be a correspondingly, decrease in interest from in the commercial world to continue its high sponsorship and, and investment in, in terms of money. So Samaranch, he, he had to grapple with this, and at times he ignored it. And as a result, uh, we get less close supervision of what was going on within the IOC and, and the corruption that Stephen talked about. And they paid the price in the end, but they s- survived. And luckily for them, uh, their image was at least preserved as, the, as these black marks were singled out and, and uh, jettisoned from the movement.
1: You know, the one That's the one thing know. I'd add too is that, in a sense, Sarmiento or whomever stepped into the presidency in 1980 really didn't have a lot of choice but to look for alternative revenue because television, you know, was supplying over 90 percent of the budget. Nobody running a business, and by this time, the Olympics were approaching business corporate status. You don't want to be that dependent on one source of revenue. So he looked to the birth of the genesis of this top program uh, to try to diversify the revenue base. And once the signal was there, and it it was not an overnight success, uh, it took a lot of hard slogging to, to try to sell the corporate world on the program, but once the signal was there, that there would be uptake by sponsors and it was generating money i mean it made about 97 million dollars in its first cycle that gave comfort to prospective host cities and somranche was dealing with the reality that governments were less inclined to pony up buckets full of uh public money for mega events and uh, you had to look in a different direction so In that sense, his decision, I think, was ultimately the correct decision to move in that direction. The issue is, at least in the context of Salt Lake City, he heard the rumours and he didn't act upon them. And that was a costly decision in terms of what it then thrust upon the IOC in terms of the scandal and the difficulties it it experienced in 1998 and
3: 99. Even taking a step back a couple of years, but with Samaranch tipping towards commercialism, then we have the Atlanta Games, which was so over-commercialized that the IOC stepped in.
1: To the point that, as we relate in the book, Samaranch basically told the marketing director at the time, Michael Payne, hey, this isn't going to happen again. Don't ever let it happen again. And one of the other interesting stories that's tied with that saga is that, you know, Dick Ebersol, who was longtime, you know, conveyor of Olympic television to the U.S. audience, you know, in effect, went through a process whereby uh, NBC was not going to be party to showing imagery of that over-commercialization. And that, in a way protected the Olympic project in the IOC at the time. And of course, Ebersole was thinking about, you know, his own property, Olympic television property and making that decision. But um, yeah, Ad- Atlanta was certainly uh, a bit of a bizarre in terms of
2: its corporate
1: look. And I don't know, Bob, you were there, were you not?
2: Yes, I was, and there's no doubt about it. It was bizarre. It was a giant flea market atmosphere uh, throughout the city, and particularly in the core around the Olympic, uh, the core facilities and, and venues. But, you know, at Australia, for instance, who already had the Games and were going to do the next ones in 2000, they had a huge delegation there to find out uh, how to do things in terms of getting ready for the Games. And one thing they learned for certain was what not to do. They were in the middle of all the argument and Center that was being levied from all corners on this atmosphere. And so those games in Sydney came off really under-commercialized, uh, that's for sure, at least outwardly, outwardly. And uh, it was a completely different atmosphere between the two between the two cities. And as Stephen said, it was a bizarre place to be. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. And
1: in that sense, just to sort of put a little bit of a bow on it, I mean, I regard the the Sydney Olympics of 2000 as one of the most important Olympic festivals, you know, in the past generation, because uh, it was the first festival staged on the heels of the Salt Lake City bid scandal when the IOC and the Olympic movement had taken so much heat and questions had been raised. And The people in Australia did Juan Antonio Samaranch a big, big favour in terms of changing the narrative about the Olympics in the staging of those games. So it's one of the things that, uh, you know, I think is central to understanding certain elements of Samaranch's presidency, especially those that unfolded in its latter years, because he... He'd already, in 1995, orchestrated things such that he could stick around through Sydney. And, of course, he departed in 2001. But he departed in 2001 with some of his um, reputation restored. And uh, I think the Australians were, quite frankly, responsible for some of that.
2: Yeah, they were definitely an image restorer.
4: Which, for Australians seems like a a an appropriate tag I don't know something about those games was just very wholesome.
1: yeah, it was uh, well, I mean Bob and i that was one that we were both at, and it was a really positive atmosphere in Australia, and you could tell that the Australian people had had largely embraced the games, there were some really positive stories such as that of kathy freeman and uh of course the australian swim team which was really in an era of pushing itself forward as a world power you know i remember riding the bus to uh the swim venue one day and happened to sit down next to uh, susie O'Neill's parents and you could just tell Um, Obviously, they were heavily invested because, heck, their daughter was participating in a very, very high-profile athlete in her own right. But you you got the sense just from mixing and mingling with uh, Australian people. I mean, they're sport-mad. Australians are absolutely sporting-mad. And uh, they certainly assisted, I think, the IOC in the the longer term, as I mentioned, in terms of really getting people to look at the Olympics – differently than had been the case over the previous two years.
4: It feels sometimes like at this point with the amount of money and the amount of commercialization, the Olympics have almost hit that too big to fail level. And I'm wondering, just since you've studied this historically, does it feel too big, too commercialized?
2: I'll just lead off by saying this. This is a a danger because there's a a lot of people in the world who decry or argue against this consumption of the olympics by the commercial world they don't think that it does anything for the image the value system uh, of the olympics there's something about being tied to commerce that uh, has a stigma attached to it whether it's the competitive marketplace or some of the corruption or or crooked business that exists in the world and so on but Uh, I look upon the tremendous expansion of commercialism uh, of the Olympics as something that may provide some severe problems in the future, particularly if it keeps growing and growing and growing to, uh, to the point where commercialism penetrates the venues, for instance. That it might penetrate the athlete's costumes, for instance, like it does in soccer and in hockey in some places, and and, and so on. At, the, the individual athlete becomes a advertising billboard. So they got to be careful, careful about that because any infractions or, or any impact on the image is a a sacrifice of one of its saleable principles, one of its saleable commodities. So, yeah, it's it's a problem, definitely. There was recently the change to Rule 40,
4: where now athletes do have some say as to their own sponsors during the games because there used to be a blackout. And I'm just wondering what your opinion is of the way it was before and the way it the way it may be going forward. We don't know yet how it's going to look, but just the athletes themselves being able to sort of cash in a little bit.
1: Well, go
2: ahead.
1: yeah, I was going to say this is sort of, I mean, we're seeing this with the NCAA as well. And uh, I think at one level there has to be a recognition and there is a growing recognition that the athletes are the show. They are the show. They are the ones who are the performers. They are the ones from whom we derive the entertainment and the exhilaration and the excitement in our consumption of the Olympics. So, Far from me to begrudge the athletes an opportunity to recoup some money because, you know, I think until you've uh, sort of really had to live close to an Olympic athlete or somebody who is an elite world caliber athlete, we don't have the foggiest notion of the level of commitment that's required and the sacrifice that is made at any number of levels in terms of earning income. And I don't have a significant problem with them, as I don't have a problem with NCAA athletes getting some money. I do agree with Bob that all of this has to be couched within certain limits. And you don't want to see Olympic athletes look like players in European hockey leagues where they, I mean, their jerseys are billboards for multiple companies, as are their helmets, that would diminish, I think, what we witness in terms of Olympic performance. So I I think there's a little bit of a search for a happy medium, and it'll be for future years to see whether they land on such a happy medium.
4: How do you think Thomas Bach is doing in balancing this?
1: Because that's not in your book. That's beyond where you where you yeah. stopped. Well, thus far, okay. I mean, um, and certainly both Jacques Rogue and Thomas Bach, I think, and one of the things we try to draw out in the book is that they have sort of altered the negotiating landscape, especially in Europe, to the betterment of the bottom line of the IOC and, and other Olympic-related bodies. You know, the big... He faces two challenges, one that he's invested a great deal of time and energy in, and we can't yet evaluate whether it's going to have success. And that is, you know, trying to return to a post-Los Angeles look of the bidding environment, whereby there are more interested cities. I mean, they've been scrambling to not just generate bid cities, but to retain them once they've put their foot forward and you know Um, he's gone through a number of different stages of that particular process so we're going to have to wait and see how that works although you know I think the move to award the games in one fell swoop to Paris for 2024 and Los Angeles 2028 was uh, a very good out of the box from an IOC perspective decision because they are so tradition laden but he was able to maneuver the IOC away from its traditional pattern of awarding the games and it's bought them some time and um, you know they've got two pretty solid locales there to host the games with experience with enthusiasm with energy like all cities there are gonna be problems over the next number of years but he's bought himself some time for the organization to try to recover the bid environment the area that, that I have a good deal of concern right now is, has to do with, with the doping issue and how to manage the Russian situation. And at one level, he's caught between the IOC's desire for universalism and everyone to participate at another level. My heart says that this was an opportunity to make a statement in a significant way that uh, was passed up. And I'm not fully convinced that without that ultimate statement, we're going to see significant change within Russia. I hope I'm wrong.
3: We haven't really talked about Jacques Rogue, but I really wanted to touch on the contentious relationship with the United States in terms of television rights, because around the time of the 2016 bid process, there were a lot of issues with how negotiations for TV were going and that really affected the Chicago bid. So let's talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, that story of contestation and conflict extends well back before Jacques Rogue's presidency. I mean, and and we try to detail that uh, story within the book and and it goes back into the mid-1980s when the USOC really first grasped Powers that it had been granted through the 1978 Amateur Sports Act, and used the Amateur Sports Act to leverage a percentage of U.S. television revenue and top sponsorship money. And so, that those two agreements were were reached in the mid 1980s. They carried through with some changes uh, in terms of the percentage allotment for both television and corporate sponsorship through the 1990s. But it was a struggle. There were fights. And yet, by the time we get to, you know, say we're about towards the, the end of Rogue's first eight year term, the patience in Europe was gone in terms of the look of the distribution and the fact that the United States Olympic Committee was the only party that had an actual direct share of domestic television revenue and was the only national Olympic Committee that got a direct share off the top before money was distributed to the other National Olympic Committees from the top program. So the European patience had dwindled and the USOC then chaired by Peter Eubroth engaged in some discussions which ultimately went nowhere. Eubroth was not going to sacrifice what he knew to be the USOC's revenue generating abilities by virtue of the Amateur Sports Act. There was little compromise, although some offered, but not enough from the IOC perspective. And that embittered, especially the European IOC cohort, such that it did Chicago no favors in advance of the 2009 session, uh, where the decision on the 2016 bid was reached and the games were awarded to Rio. but. The fact that Chicago was summarily dismissed despite having an excellent bid on the first uh, ballot, I suppose it wasn't, it wasn't great for Chicago, but it was in a sense in the wider Olympic world a bit of a blessing because it did force the parties to the table. There was a mutual realization that that fissure and chasm between the two organizations in terms of them understanding issues tied to the distribution of Olympic revenue had to be solved. And it ultimately was, though I think it's clear that the USOC did pretty well in the restructuring of the agreement and the deal. And there is some thought that little has really changed, but maybe the fact that change could be announced was enough to, you know, stifle the dissent within Europe, but uh, There is a better relationship now, at least in terms of the IOC and the SOC understanding each other with respect to revenue and revenue generation, and that can't but help assist the IOC, really, in uh, the management of the whole Olympic enterprise.
2: Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I think Stephen hit, hit on a big factor right there at the end. Of his uh, discourse, but really the, the individuals engaged in, uh, with each other from the U.S. from the IOC uh, in the era of, of controversy. Just the relationships between the people were embittered. they were enemies, and the dialogue there was no grounds for good dialogue, discourse, or uh, negotiation. Those parties changed after in robust during robust time and onwards and that made a big difference uh in just the general personalities of people involved willing to negotiate and sit down and talk whereas previously it it was like a mexican standoff all the time they needed marriage counseling (laughs) yeah Uh, oh yeah
1: yeah no they they uh there was a the opportunity to move forward with the parties that were in place had basically ground to a halt. And it did take a shift in personnel and a a willingness to talk. And from that perspective, you know, um, one of the things we draw out in the book is that Scott Blackman, on the revenue side of things with respect to the operation of the USOC, made a, a really significant contribution in his willingness to engage with the IOC and work towards some sort of an agreement. And ultimately, uh, you know, it took the better part of two years to to figure things out. And it was a multi-stage process. But an agreement did come forward that both parties could trumpet and seem to satisfy observers on both sides.
3: Oh, interesting. It'll be fascinating to see how the next decade or so plays out in terms of sponsorships and revenues and and the programs that are being implemented now, how they play out in the future?
1: Yeah, I, I just, I would say that one of the things that was central, you know, to being able to produce this book was the willingness of people to talk to us, to allow us to interview them, you know, people who had been or are currently in decision-making roles with the IOC, especially. And, you know, we also interviewed Scott Blackman. And I think, that's one of the elements of the book that I guess I'm most proud of that you know I think we've been able to bring to the fore the story of some very recent history within the IOC and uh, within its uh, articulation with television networks and corporate sponsors that you don't often get a chance to look at because of regulations with respect to you know access to IOC archives, which I must say. You know, we had some access there, too. But I do think the colour and the texture of the the story of Rogue's presidency is brought forward by those interviews. And uh, we think people were um, quite candid with us. And I I think ultimately we've succeeded in extending the story of the IOC's relationship with various commercial partners uh, pretty much right up to uh, 2013.
3: Thank you so much, Stephen and Bob. Their book, The Golden the Rings, The People and Events That Transformed the Olympic Games, is published by the University of Illinois Press and is available at bookstores. We'll put a link in the show notes. It was fun talking with them. I mean, yes. like, the... Just the knowledge that they have, the decades and decades of knowledge, was interesting. And I, and I was really glad that we got an answer to our Chariots of Fire question.
4: Like, I know. right? Well. I'm glad we thought to ask it. Because <laughs> we, you know, we had so many things to talk to them about in a very crunched amount of time. So we were rushing through some things. But yeah, we got our answer.
3: And we got to talk smack about Brundage.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you know how much I love that? <laughs> I knew when I read the book that these were my people who were not fans, Right, Avery Brendage. I was like, oh, we're going to chat.
3: There were some choice
4: things that we cut out, thankfully.
3: (laughs) Exactly.
4: I think the USOPC is mad enough at us. (laughs) You know what it's time for? Team Olympic Fever update. Oofu! I just realized we're going to have to change that, too.
3: Yeah, we are going to have to change that. I mean, that's the one thing, like, we've had some suggestions that have had fever in the title, And that, you know, you could have team fever. But yeah, remember when you're making your name suggestions that our team needs a new name as well. We're going to get the not so great news out of the way. Our bobsled stud, Josh Williamson, crashed at the World Championships. He had a concussion but is now recovering.
4: Hunter Church. Hunter Church uh, was the driver. Was the driver. And he had some bruised ribs as well.
3: Well, Josh, we are rooting for you and hope you get better soon. And hope you're staying away from those screens. Let the concussion work itself out.
4: I know, but we have better news. We do for have the better news. World championships.
3: Oh so exciting. Oh yes, better news is that Lauren Gibbs won world championship gold medal at the bobsled uh, world championships. She was a pusher for Kaylee Humphreys.
4: And on the same day that they won their gold medal, Lauren Gibbs's partner from Pyeongchang, Elena Myers Taylor, gave birth. It was oh. the same day. Oh my gosh! Wow. So that was just a, a wow. A, fantastic gold star day all the way around nice
3: nice the dulcet tones of jason bryant will be announcing at the wrestling tournament in tokyo it's all official he got the call so excited for you jason
4: cannot happen to somebody nicer
3: i know i know
4: or until you'll see you'll see yes oh i know (laughs) just have him talk to you just have him (laughs) send me messages Our diver, Laura
3: Wilkinson, signed with the Scripter Publishing Group, and she's going to be publishing a collection of stories from her Life at 10 Meters and the lessons she's learned through her journey, and it should be launching in May. So look forward to that. excited for her to have a nice little book deal. And then our gymnast, Chelsea Memel, is headed to the National Association of Intercollegiate Gymnastics Clubs Nationals in Providence this April. Very nice. And I couldn't quite get... I think she's competing... Because this seemed to be a meet for collegiate plus adults. Huh. So I'm not oh, sure. Because yeah, she, cause she said on social that she was cheering. She'll she'll be cheering people on. So she could be going for her gym. But she also might be competing. Because, man, huh. those the videos she's been putting out are just insane.
4: Yeah. She's like, oh, yeah, I haven't done this in five years. Let me flip over 46 times.
3: Right. And, and y- land on a toe. <laughs> We will be on the lookout for that. If you happen to be in Providence this April and go to the meet, let us know because we want to hear all about it. Moving on to our Tokyo 2020 update. We have a ton of news from Tokyo.
4: So is Tokyo going to get disrupted by the coronavirus?
3: Absolutely not. And that's official from the IOC, straight from the IOC's press arm today, the day we are taping. The IOC executive board is actually meeting this week, and that was one of the things they talked about today. And I was watching the press conference afterwards, and Mark Adams was the spokesman on duty for the IOC. And he basically said right up front, he's like, I know you're going to ask about it, but we're going to have the games. They're going to start on July 24th, and that's it. And all these reporters were like, well, what about this? What about, you know, what about this, you know, speculation? What what would you have for a plan B? And they said, we don't have a plan B because they're going to start on July 24th. And I'm not going to speculate any more about this.
4: It's sort of like when the kid keeps asking for the cookie. Right. And, you know, Mark was just dead saying no. No, (laughs) this is (laughs) this is not how it's going to work. Right.
3: But he did say that there's a working group involved and they're in communication with the World Health Organization and other organizations and they they basically said look the the who has not called this a pandemic yet and there's no global travel bans there's just regional travel bans that certain countries have implemented so because there's nothing global and because it's not at a pandemic stage yet there's no reason to think that this will be going on in july or at least if it is it'll be managed
4: we just gotta sit and watch hope for the best
3: Right, Japan has released its medal ceremony uniforms. So before we had talked about their opening ceremonies uniforms, which is a play on the 1964 uniforms. And now they've also got a medal ceremony uniform, which is a little sportier. It's made by ASICS, the sports equipment manufacturer. And they're red shirts with kind of a really cool geometric pattern on them and dark bottoms. Eh. I think they look pretty, they look sporty.
4: I think they sort of look like a fast food uniform.
3: Oh, ouch. Sorry. And they have red and black sneakers. Yeah. Which are quite bright. This is going to be kind of interesting. The IOC announced that the Olympic Foundation for Culture and Heritage is going to have the first Olympic Agora in the Nihonbashi District of Tokyo, and it's going to start on April 24th and run through August 16. So it's, Based on the Greek Agora public space and public market, they're going to have a big area that's got displays, exhibitions, there's going to be a cafe, there's going to be a shop, they'll have events. And also the Olympic Channel Studios is going to be in Fukutoku Garden, which is in that same area, during the Games, and then... Also, from mid-July to mid-August, the Olympian Artists in Residence program will be in Nakadori, which I believe that's in the same area, too. And we will have a calendar of events and map in the show notes.
4: I've never heard of an Agora.
3: I remember it from, like, studying ancient Greek life, you know, when we, we talked about mythology and stuff and ancient Greece. But, yeah, it's like a big public marketplace type area. And this is really, I think it's really cool.
4: I think that sounds wonderful. Any more... Where you bring the Olympics into the city and it's Mm -hmm. not just I'm going to this race or I'm going to this where you're just in the city and it becomes part of the workings, I think is fantastic.
3: Right. And you don't need a ticket, especially if you're a Japanese citizen who did not get a ticket or anybody else who's there who didn't get the tickets they wanted to. It's also something extra to do and enjoy. And mingle. Yeah. So that's exciting. Allison, I cannot believe that the torch lighting is next week.
4: Oh, my goodness. I am not ready.
3: I am not ready for this either. So our friend Carlos Groman wrote a big article saying that the torch lighting ceremony is going to be scaled down. So they, you know, they light the torch in Greece and they have a big ceremony and they have all these big wigs there. There's always somebody who's got to sit and like, you remember, do you remember the last one that they had, that they had those big club chairs almost?
4: Yes. <laughs> they, they sort of looked like something out of. A really tacky Greek restaurant
3: right right with arms and like padded and, and they just look enormous <laughs> and heavy and there were lots of them and lots of dignitaries sitting in them
4: they did not look comfortable no
3: but they also looked like oh so-and-so needs his chair you
4: know? and all I kept thinking when I look at a chair like that is my feet would not touch the floor if I was sitting in that chair
3: <laughs> ditto I can tell you
4: I'd need one of the little footstools
3: <laughs>
4: but yes there's going to be fewer attendees not quite so much they'll still have all the pomp but right they're keeping it limited in terms of numbers
3: exactly so uh we will have a link to that in the show notes and uh yeah they'll have the the torch lighting ceremony a little relay in Greece, and then it's off to japan
4: which also is scaling back
3: yeah and they in the ioc press conference today they said it's the Organizers are letting like the head of each prefecture decide how it's going to work for that prefecture, just because the coronavirus in Japan is having some highs and lows right now. And there's kind of a lot of uncertainty around it.
4: Right. So it is definitely affecting events. Right. The, uh, the baseball qualifier has been delayed. Mm-hmm. Other qualifiers have been relocated. So it's definitely hitting the periphery right if not directly to Tokyo 2020
3: and finally for the first time in olympic history the pictograms that tell you what each sport is they are now animated
4: but where are they going i was confused about this okay first of all i was slightly creeped out by them <laughs> because i thought they looked like bugs okay that that was my immediate okay. reaction but when are you going to use a moving pictogram because like for example when we were in lake placid mm-hmm. They had the pictograms along the, um on the different buildings, right. along the, on the streetlights, you know, on TV, they'll have a pictogram where they tell you which event you're going to. When is a moving pictogram needed?
3: It's going to be on that TV screen. So, you know, when, when you come in from commercial or you're coming on a live stream and you've got that here's our introductory screen and it's like shooting and there's a little pictogram at the bottom and it says shooting along the bottom right maybe some other information that's where it's going to be and usually that screen is also kind of displayed in the arena itself because most arenas have big screens too so they'll have them there but mostly i think they're going to be used for social media for live streaming for broadcast if you're there in person you may or may not see them but i I think they're kind of cool they're interesting necessary i don't know but they made them happy. but they're cool
4: yeah you're right okay so they want to be different they want to Mm -hmm. be cool they want to do what the cool kids are doing so let's make moving pictograms i just sounded like grandma (laughs) what are those kids doing on my lawn
3: between bonanza and, (laughs) and this
4: i'm sorry i'm like 90 years old suddenly it's the coronavirus
3: Also from the IOC, we'll have a little IOC update. They have been talking about changing the guidelines for transgender and intersex athletes. And they decided that the ruling that they made in 2015, they're gonna keep that through Tokyo just because it would be difficult to change the guidelines in the middle of qualifications and they just wanted to keep kind of the status quo through these games and then they're going to work on it again.
4: And that ruling basically said you are what you were born Mm -hmm. and that's where you compete and you have to follow all the um, doping guidelines when it comes to hormones.
3: Right. Look for that. I would say next year they'll probably be, be talking about that again. And then there were some changes of nationality today and We'll have a full list later on the in the show notes, but I did notice the
4: USOPC get our citizenship revoked. (laughs)
3: Wouldn't that be funny? Changes of nationality, podcaster. <laughs> but there were 11 athletes that changed nationalities today. And Mark Adams, the spokesperson from the IOC, did acknowledge that there should be a three year waiting period for this, but that can be waived if the National Olympic Committee and an international federation don't have concerns about that. For So for these 11, that three year period got waived. And I noticed that there were a lot of Russians on the list Mm. moving to other countries. And then someone from the refugee team moved to uh, Mongolia. Hmm. So that's gonna be interesting.
4: Huh, that'll be an interesting story. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no big surprise on the Russians. They're, They're not sticking around to get banned.
3: And then we have a little IOC slash Paris 2024 update, which is Tahiti was approved as the venue for surfing for 2024.
4: I cannot, I'm thrilled in the weirdest way and I cannot believe it.
3: Well, it was funny because somebody, one of the journalists asked, and I, I can't remember who it was, asked what the main consideration for this decision was, considering that t was not thrilled a few months ago when this was first originally announced. And Mark said, well, you know, you, you kind of have to get it from Paris 2024. It's really their thing. But he said they had a good thorough presentation. And they went through the fact that it's a popular location with current surfers and famous surfers. And so there was some overwhelming support for that. But the executive board was convinced by the enthusiasm of the presentation.
4: Did they wear coconut bras and grass skirts?
3: I don't know. Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall in that? But it's like the enthusiasm of a presentation is like the IOC's kryptonite.
4: It is. We talked about this when they awarded Cortina. They get caught up in the glitz and the glamour.
3: Right. And I'm sure- They need my
4: fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Heidelberger, to just come in with her red felt tip pen and be like, no, excess words. No, too many adjectives. Get to your point. <laughs> so it's it's
3: going to be beautiful and lovely, I'm sure, except for the fact that the IOC is just going to get raked over the coals for sustainability.
4: Oh, Yeah. I mean you're gonna have people flying back and forth left and right.
3: Right. So it'll be that'll be like didn't you see hopefully you'll see this common IOC. That's that's all I gotta say.
4: And heck, by then it might be underwater for all we yeah, know. For all we know. Well that'll be good for surfing. <laughs> Everybody'll uh, be surfing in Tahiti. Ooh. You know what I think really swayed them? When T-Buck heard that I was definitely going to Tahiti if it was there.
3: Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. That was the deciding
4: factor. Yes. No doubt. The and L- I promised him a drink with an umbrella, so.
3: Well, there you go. How can he turn that down?
4: I know. Seriously.
3: I'll make your plans now.
4: I know. i got to start my tan. Got to sure. do my base tan.
3: That will wrap it up for this week. Don't forget to send us your show name suggestions.
4: Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 53070 Fever. We're Olim Fever on Twitter and Insta, and Olympic Fever Podcast Group on Facebook.
3: Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the
2: flame alive. It was a bizarre place to be. <laughs> There's no doubt about it.
0: do 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 do
4: do